This is Isaka's Page 2 Podcast. Thanks everyone for joining us today. I'm Safia Kazi, Isaka's Privacy Professional Practices Principal. Joining me today is Stephen Ross, Executive Principal for Risk Masters International. He's here to chat about his recently released Isaka Journal article titled Privacy for Sale. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure, always. So before we really get into the content of your article, could you give us a little bit of background about yourself and your experience for our audience? Well, we we only have 20 minutes. So uh, <laughs> I've been in information security for closing in on half a century, I guess. That's frightening. Um, in a number of different industries, but I've been a consultant for most of that time. Also have a you know a deep association with ISACA. I was at one point the president. Uh, before there was a chair, there was a president. And I've taught for ISACA, I've spoken for ISACA, I've written for ISACA, and specifically the IT Security Matters column in the ISACA Journal for 24 years. Thanks. And so in your article, you post the question, is privacy a commodity? What's your view on that? Do you think people do view privacy as a commodity and should it be viewed in that way? Well, I don't know how, I am not going to speak for people. Uh, I certainly don't view it as a commodity. And up until very recently, even though I've been preaching for some time that the the best way to achieve privacy is to frame it as a value proposition rather than as a set of laws that we have to observe. Nonetheless, I haven't seen that much movement into the marketplace until recently, where vendors of various products are saying, ours is better because we give you privacy. And I think the the one who started that and is most effective thus far has been at the Apple Corporation. And it's because of the penetration that Apple has made with privacy as a sales point that this showed up in an article in the New York Times, which I reference in my article. As it happens, it was uh, on a weekend that it showed up on the front page, an article about how privacy is uh, becoming a bone of contention in, in the marketplace. And I said, well, with my Saturday morning coffee, I'm going to read this article. And it set off in my mind uh, a great deal of thought, which showed up in the in the Saka Journal. And then your article mentions this idea of surveillance capitalism. What is that concept and why might it be something that's a little bit problematic? It's a, it's a concept that was uh, first expressed by a woman named Shushana Zuboff in her book of the same title, Surveillance Capitalism. And she makes the point that there are major companies that we are generally calling, quote, quote, big tech. And by that, I think she means, well, I know she means because I read the book, Google, Facebook, uh, Amazon, all the others that capture information about us from what, what our online interactions are and use that primarily as a sales mechanism to watch what we do and 
try to make us do things that various vendors who pay for the for the uh, information uh, want us to do. I am. I want to be clear. I think it's it's an interesting proposition. It certainly has been adopted as a theme by many other writers. But I also want to say that I'm not as strong on Ms. Ms. Zuboff's point of view as some other people in the privacy space. I just know that, you know, we have been tracking data about people for a very long time. It's just that the Facebooks and Googles of the world do a better job of it. You know that aside, it does go to the heart of the of the case that you're that you're raising, that the ability to keep our privacy in the face of these organizations that are trying to violate it or at least bend it, I won't say violate it, is creating a a two tier system. Those who can afford privacy and those who can't, or it may. I don't know if it is, but it may. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because in your article, you allude to this idea that at some point, privacy could become something that some people can afford and some people can't. It could potentially create basically two classes of internet users, right? People who get privacy and then people who don't get privacy. What would be some of the ramifications if that were to happen? Well, I think you you hit the, uh, the main point that do we really want a society in which there are those who can have what is I, I believe an essential right in the United States? We don't we don't en enshrine that in our uh, constitution, whereas in Europe it is enshrined in some of the foundational documents of the Euro European Union. But that aside, with uh, the legalism aside, I think we all have a right to privacy. You know, whether it's a, a legal or constitutional right is kind of immaterial. For my sake alone, I would say that I prize my privacy to an extent. I, you know, I know every time I use Google that they're capturing some minute piece of information about what I'm interested in. And very often happens that I look up something and the next day I get an advertisement for something related to it. Today, I ordered some shampoo online. I'm sure I'm going to see an ad for shampoo tomorrow. But I go do it anyway. And I just say, what's the big deal if I get commercials? I can live with commercials. I still use Google Maps when I'm, when I'm traveling. I know that they know where I am. I know that they know where I'm going. Okay, so. But there are people who feel more strongly about it than I do. And then there are certain things, my, my health records, my financial records. I would be very upset if anybody knew what those were without my permission or if they were disclosed without my permission. So we're getting closer and closer to a point where you can buy privacy by paying a premium. And as I say, Apple was one of the leaders in this. And as I've read in, in the press and in that Times article that I mentioned, an iPhone costs more than other phones. And to a great extent, Apple's marketing has been stressing the fact that they give you privacy and the ability to block big tech from 
following you and they charge more money. So there's there's the exact price differential. It's not it's not the only example, but it is the one that certainly is the leading example. It's interesting you mentioned something like Google Maps, which can make your life a lot easier. Um, yeah. I think so much of the technology that we have, you have to give up a little bit of privacy to get a really interesting benefit. Like I'm thinking of those robot floor vacuums that <laughs> learn the layout of your home. They know to avoid the sofa, they know how to avoid the stairs, but then that means a big company knows the layout of your home. I'm curious, do you think that people understand the privacy ramifications of that? Are they apathetic about it? Or have people just kind of resigned themselves to the idea that my data's out there, there's not a lot I can do to protect my privacy moving forward? I, I think you're right. That most people have just said, what's the big deal? I'm not sure about whether the, the carpet device you're talking about actually sends information back to some central database rather than just storing it on, on the device itself, but uh, that's immaterial, it could. I think that the deeper issue is what boundaries do we place, number one. And number two, for those of us who are, how do we call ourselves, Safia? We're, we're privacy professionals, good mm -hmm. phrase. You wanna use that one? We say that if given a choice, people want privacy. And then we look around and say, hmm, people are being given a choice and they choose something else. And oh, by the way, I'm a privacy professional and I choose something else. So where do we draw the line? As I say, that is the crux of the matter, I believe. And I don't think we have a, a solid determination. If you listen to uh, you started with Shoshana Zuboff. If you listen to her, we've we've gone already way too far, and there are companies that are way too big and know way too much about us, and could potentially, not actually, potentially, be using that information to do somewhat nefarious things to harm us. So far, I'm going to say, speak for myself, I don't feel terribly harmed. In a previous article on on this, I said if I look up castles in Spain because I'm going to go on vacation, I don't really expect to get advertisements to induce me to to buy a, a castle. I'm not in the market. So, what is the point at which I would say no? You've gone too far. And as I said, I think medical and financial is certainly in that area. And it also goes to the question of, since all it is, as far as I can see, is commercials, advertisements, how effective are advertisements in changing my behavior? I'd like to think I'm very sales resistant. I don't buy anything except what I want. But do I really know myself that well? Um, I'd like to think so, but I don't know if it's true. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I know there was a really common example a few years ago of a young girl who went to a retail store, bought some products, and then her family started receiving ads uh, indicating that she was having a baby. And it was in fact true because of the purchases that she made. Uh, I'm curious mm -hmm. to hear your thoughts on advertising in that context and the fact that advertising could potentially reveal something about a person that they might not quite be ready to disclose at a particular point. That verges on my point about health records and 
and uh, financial records, it's kind of hard to say having a baby is a it's a matter of health, but it is something that you do go and see a doctor about. And certainly it's something that is in our American culture today is a very lively argument. Not so much that the girl was pregnant, but that if she had decided to end the pregnancy with or without her parents' permission, that would have been taking the whole issue to a very different at law. And then if we could shift gears and talk a little bit about regulations, I think one of the challenges that we have here in the U.S. especially is that we don't really have a federal privacy law at any capacity. That said, I feel like GDPR and CCPA have had quite a bit of effect, but did you expect things like GDPR and CCPA to have a greater impact on privacy than they did? Well, let's, let's take a couple of things you said and I want to push back. First of all, we do have privacy laws, national privacy laws, and we've had them for quite a while. My entree into this whole space was dealing with the fellow who was my congressman at the time, became New York City mayor, who was one of the two authors of what became the Privacy Act of 1974. That is still in effect. It dictates the way that government must handle uh, personal records. And then following that, the Right to Financial Privacy Act of, I believe, 88, but don't hold me to it, which is really much more stringent and is largely forgotten and has a lot of impact, particularly on putting a price tag on the, on the value of a data record. That's part of it. The other is that I think GDPR in particular and CCPA to a lesser extent, because GDPR is, after all, a multinational set of regulations, is more talked about than enforced. I've been tracking the numbers for several years now, and what you what you read in the press and what you see in the in the uh, news articles about the the big cases, there are. 10 to 20 companies that get hit with very large fines. And then there are thousands and thousands of cases that don't even reach a fine. And of those that do, they are relatively speaking small, quite small. Not enough to really have, in my opinion, the deterrent effect that GDPR was supposed to have. And to my way of thinking, it goes right back to the case that we were talking about before. We talk about privacy, we say we're in favor of privacy, we want privacy, but if we have to pay for it, uh, maybe. I don't want that much privacy. Yeah, I think one of the big challenges is that you and I as consumers don't have that much power, right? We can't band together and go to a vendor and say, change your terms of service because we don't accept them. It's either accept our terms or don't use the service. Do you know of any other meaningful steps that organizations could take to help empower their data subjects? Or on the other hand, is there anything consumers could do to rein in privacy infringements from application vendors? Sure, don't use them. You know, uh, I, for years and years, I got out this big piece of paper in the car and I unfolded, I could never fold it back the same way. It was called a map. 
and I somehow found my way around not only my own neighborhood, but I drove all over Europe using a map. And I don't necessarily have to search with Google. Not that it would make that much difference if I were to use Bing. I don't know, does Yahoo still exist? Could I get out on Yahoo? At least 50% of the, the things that I want to see at any given day on the internet, I already know the URL. I don't have to go looking for it. So it's not that big a deal if you want to make it not that big a deal. Personally, I like the convenience of being able to say, you know, who played first base for the Giants in 1933? And uh, Mel Ott, by the way. Now, you mentioned this earlier on, but some companies are taking steps to try to make privacy more built into their products. Yes. Do you anticipate this being something that more companies are going to do because it could potentially become a competitive advantage? I think we're on the knife's edge right now. Mm -hmm. If Apple continues to maintain its, its edge in the cell phone business, yes. If Facebook, that is the primary, I would say opponent of Apple in this effort, who says that by blocking the ability to track what you're looking at, it's hurting small businesses, which, you know, a, a case can be made. I don't know if I accept it, but the case can be made. That's gonna determine how things go in the future. If we as individuals and we as a society don't show that we are our willingness to pay for privacy and put it on somebody's bottom line, we won't get it. All right, and then before we wrap up, is there anything else about your article Privacy for Sale that you wanted to talk about in the session that you didn't have a chance to share? <laughs> okay, yes. Uh, we talked about Apple, we talked about Facebook, or now Meta. Uh, but there's also uh, Google. We uh, went back and forth, Marita Jasper, who's the editor, and myself as to exactly what I wanted to say about Google. And I said, why don't we paraphrase St. Augustine? And I said, Google's position is, give me privacy, but not yet. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering how many readers or listeners to this, uh, this podcast will recognize that it was St. Augustine who said, give me chastity, but not yet. So I've snuck a lot of uh, my contemporary civilization class into my articles over the years. This was the most recent. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Steve. Yeah, pleasure. If you're interested in learning more, you can click the link in the episode details to access Stephen's full Isaka Journal article. I'm Safia Kazi, and thank you for tuning in. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of Page to Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode.